0: Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to 2 Thessalonians. I'd hate for anybody to get wet head into their car tonight, so I'll just preach as long as the rain goes, and, uh, and you'll be dry, right? That'll work. Second Thessalonians, I took a couple weeks of a break, and, but getting back to our series in the book of First and Second Thessalonians, talking about living in the last days. And uh, Second Thessalonians is really a continuation of that. So we'll uh, dig into the very first chapter, the first couple of verses tonight in just a little bit, but I wonder if I might uh, spark your thinking a little bit this evening. Have you ever been in the midst of a time of trial or difficulty? Perhaps it's a really bad week, or maybe just simply a really bad day. And then you look forward to going to church. Go to church. What are your expectations going to church? Well, if you're anything like most of us, your thoughts are I'm having a really hard time, I'm struggling. I'm dealing with some trials. I'm in the middle of some difficulties. I don't see how anyone else could be dealing with the degree of difficulty that I'm dealing with. I need, in this moment, I need my church family to minister to me in my time of trouble and difficulty. That's normally how we think, right? Can I ask you, if you have a a couple of occasions that you can actually remember... How how well does that usually work out for you? Oftentimes we set ourselves up for offense and disappointment. We're expecting because I am in a a troublesome time, my church family needs to minister to me. Now, is that a is that a wrong? Idea, not necessarily. Obviously, that's why we exist as a body. One of the reasons why we exist as a body is to minister to one another, encourage one another. But often it doesn't happen the way we expect it to. But what if our attitude was different? What if our perspective was not all that it is really supposed to be? Could that make a difference? Just spur your thinking a little bit tonight. We've come now to 2 Thessalonians, and I'll just give a little bit of a background. We've done a lot of this already a couple of weeks ago, and we were looking at 1 Thessalonians. But tying these two together, because they're, they're, they're not only similar in content, but as far as their their historical context, they're also very similar. Written only... A few months uh, at most apart from each other. So they kind of go uh, together hand in glove. But you'll remember that Paul and, and Silas started their second missionary journey there in Acts chapter 15. We're just getting to that and, and uh, Pastor Roland's Sunday morning series. And of course they're going back to confirm uh, some of the churches and believers. Some of the, the places they were in that, fir- in that first missionary journey. And they, they revisit the, the area of Derby and Lystra. And Timothy joins them there, and he goes along with to labor with them. They had great intentions of going straight north and perhaps even to the east into Asia to preach the gospel there. And God said, no, I've got different plans. And eventually he calls them to go to the, to the region of Macedonia. Somewhere along that line, Luke joins them. Of course, Paul sees that vision of the Macedonian man there come over and help us. And God had prepared the ground there in Europe uh, there in Macedonia for, uh, for some church plants in the cities of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. And of course, uh, you're probably familiar, remember what took place there in Philippi, including that memorable night you know, in the jail, Paul and Silas in the jail. And of course, because of the, the, the persecution, they're forced to move on to the city of, of uh, Berea. Luke stays behind to kind of help with the organization there in, 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 of the church in Philippi. And uh, so Paul and Silas and Timothy travel west along the coast and they come to the city of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. There was there in Thessalonica, and this is kind of an important piece to the, to the overall puzzle, unlike some of the other cities in, um, in Macedonia, there was a decent sized population of Jewish people in the city of Thessalonica and they had their own synagogue in that city, and so the book of Acts tells us that Paul spent three Sabbath days uh, reasoning with the with the folks there in the synagogue and preaching Christ. And as a result, Acts seventeen four tells us that uh, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So obviously, God blessed the ministry there in, in a great way, and and many many folks got saved and. They weren't able to stay there in the synagogue for very long, um, so they moved on, probably met in other places. There was some intervening months of ministry uh, that we're not told a lot about, but we know that Paul spent a few months there because uh, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians that he labored uh, there in that city to support the, the, uh, the team, the missions team, so they could preach freely. Uh, We also know that uh, Paul received two different love offerings from Philippi while there in Thessalonica. So probably a few months uh, he spent there teaching and laying the foundation, a lot of discipleship. And you can see that. We saw that as we were going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. All the things that he had taught them uh, in just that brief period of time. But obviously Satan didn't like what was going on in Thessalonica. And that Jewish opposition... um, ...forced Paul and Silas, and along with Timothy, to leave. And Paul described that in, in 1 Thessalonians 2 as being taken from them. Kind of ripped away from them because of the circumstances. But they left a church behind. And I'm glad the, the, the apostles, they didn't just have preaching campaigns. They, they didn't just go and, and make a name for themselves. But they planted churches. And so they planted this church. It was a young church, but... What a church it was. And we saw in our study of First Thessalonians that it was a, they were an evangelistic church. They were a steadfast church. They were a church that raised up God-called men like Jason and Aristarchus and Secundus. Uh, they even had, um, according to First Thessalonians 5, they even had multiple pastors by this time. Uh, and a remarkable thing for a church that young to be that mature. The team, the missions team, would have to move on and leave that church on its own. Uh, They moved on to Berea where Paul would be forced again once the the Jews in Thessalonica followed them to Berea and forced them out there. Eventually, they would have to go to Athens um, and rendezvous all together, Silas, Timothy, and Paul there in Athens after Paul's sermon there at Mars Hill. But Paul would be so burdened, as we looked at last time, that he needed to send Timothy back to find out how things were going in the city of Thessalonica. In the meanwhile, Paul moved on to Corinth and waited for Timothy To return. You'll remember, Timothy returned. He had a glowing report of how well things were going in the city of Thessalonica, and so Paul sits down and he writes the first preserved letter for us uh, of the Pauline epistles, 1 Thessalonians. Um, And then it was only about a short time later. All right, so just to get the chronology, Paul writes that first letter probably about six to 12 months after the church of Thessalonica was started. He writes that first letter. And now another i say six to eight months goes, goes by between the spring and the fall. And in that time, Paul would learn some things. After he sent that letter, um, after they received uh, Paul's teaching there, especially regarding the, the second coming, he learned some things. He learned that there was some false teaching that was going on. Some misunderstanding, perhaps, of the things that he had, he had written, perhaps just uh, just some straight up false doctrine. We don't know exactly where it came from. Um, this false doctrine was heightened by a a letter that claimed to be from Paul himself, but it was a forgery. And so, obviously, that caused a lot of confusion. As a result of that false teaching, and the false teaching was, hey, uh, you know, uh, either Jesus has already come back or he's coming back, you know, really soon. So let's just quit all of our jobs and and live in a disorderly sort of way. And because of that false teaching, disorderly conduct continued and even worsened. And we'll see that in chapter 3 of here in 2 Thessalonians. The third thing he learned was that unfortunately the persecution that had forced Paul to leave had not diminished, but instead it had grown. And so for these reasons, Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians just a few months after he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And while there's some Clear distinctions between these two books. They're very similar. Their content is very similar. And so I was going to you know, come up with a new title for this series. We're just going to continue right on because the content is, it fits right in. that is living in the, the last days, living in light of Christ's return. So now we come to 2 Thessalonians, our, our text for tonight. Verse 1, we read, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus... ...unto the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you, or, yeah, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. And we'll stop there. You'll probably note, as we are reading, um, that sentence that begins there in verse number uh, 3 goes all the way down, and if I'm remembering correct, it does not end until almost the end of the chapter. And so we are going to have to break that sentence a little bit just for sake of time. But I was thinking about the context as the Thessalonian believers were receiving this letter. We're we're told about what they're going through in verse 3 and 4. They're in the midst of a trial. They're suffering. And when we get in that place in the midst of a trial, it's only natural for us, as we we spoke about in the beginning, it's only natural for us to seek to be ministered to. Seek people to meet our needs. And and, and oftentimes we can even view it as an excuse. Well, you know, I'm going through a difficult time, therefore I'm just going to kind of put on pause my ministry to others because, you know, I'm going through a difficult time. And there are times where that needs to take place. Um, But I'm just... Uh, Think about your attitude. This is often the way we naturally as human beings react and respond. But what's remarkable, though, is when we come to the church at Thessalonica, when we come to this passage, we actually see the exact opposite. That these people were ministering in the midst of deep trouble and persecution. They were ministering in the midst. And we want to take a look at that tonight, ministering in the midst, and Paul chronicles exactly what their ministry was specifically to him and the missions team there in verses three and four. Before we get there, I don't want to skip over verses one and two. And so let's just take a few moments to look at the salutation to this church. And if you've read your Bible, if you've read Paul, Paul's epistles very much, you'll that this Uh, This greeting is fairly normal. In fact, so normal that you'd be kind of tempted to just say, oh, that's just how he starts all of his letters and you move on. But there's a couple of interesting things to note. You notice that he starts out Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians. Now, it's obvious from the context of the later uh, chapters of this letter that Paul is the leader. He's the, the driving force. He mentions some personal things about himself and, and his viewpo- viewpoint on things. But you'll notice that he starts off the letter in a, hum- in a humble sort of way, acknowledging those that are with him. And I want you to take note of Paul's humility. He's not just saying, this is me. This is what I want to say. This is my agenda. But instead, it's we. In fact, that pronoun we is used 17 times throughout this whole book, we. And then uh, it's also used as as the the pronoun us. That's used used eight times, just in these three short chapters. And a lot of times we get involved in, in ministry and the temptation is, well, it's all about me. It's all about what I'm doing. It's all about what's going on in my ministry. And look how God is blessing me. And look at all the people that I am witnessing to and I am discipling. And too often it can become... All about ourselves. And it's interesting we don't see that from Paul. This is the same pattern from the book of 1 Thessalonians as well. It's not just about me, it's we, and it's us. We note Paul's humility. We also note Paul's acknowledgement in verse number one. He says, I'm writing unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you probably noticed that that phrase, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is repeated twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 2. And of course, we could point out, and it would be a fair, a fair point, this is an indication of the, the equality. It's equating Jesus Christ with God the Father, a, a clear reference to his deity. But I was, I was uh, kind of... Um, what got my attention there was the location, really, of the church. Notice how he describes the church there. The church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is acknowledging the location of this church. Yes, the physical address of this church was the city of Thessalonica. There might have been a specific place, a building or whatever, or a a location, someone's home, where they met on a consistent basis. That was their physical address. But their spiritual address was that they were in God. This was their location. And this is the location enjoyed by all of the Lord's churches. Because the church... God's institution, the institution that Jesus started is important to him. It's significant to him. And when you're a part of a local New Testament church, you're in that position. Your, your address is in God. It's a place of significance. It's a place of acceptance. It, it, it's a place of safety and a place of rest in one of the Lord's churches. And if you're a member of Lehigh Valley Baptist Church or you're a member of, of, of one of the Lord's churches, it is a privilege... And it is, it is something not to take lightly. It's significant. So there's something to learn from Paul's acknowledgement. But then in verse 2, there's also something to learn from Paul's formula. When I use the word formula. I think you'll see why in a second. He says in verse 2, Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of grace and peace. If you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, all of them with the one exception i do believe that peter or that that paul wrote the book of hebrews hebrews is the only exception every other letter from paul starts the exact same way there is some sort of address there's some sort of salutation where paul says grace and peace be unto you it was it's his it's his mantra uh, paul never got over the grace of god that he experienced to the chiefest of sinners he never got over the grace that, that took him from being a persecutor of the church to being the greatest proponent of the church. He never got over that grace. He never got over the, the peace that finally resolved that inner turmoil that was in his heart uh, after, after he saw and was a part of the martyrdom of Stephen and how that, that bothered him and, and gripped his heart. And, and, and when he was on the road to Damascus... Uh, we're, we're given a window in when, when Jesus says, why are you kicking against the pricks? And so we have this idea that he's fighting against the conviction. There's great turmoil in his heart and in his life. And when he meets Jesus, he finally experiences peace. The peace that resolved his inner, his inner turmoil. The peace that delivered him from the pain of kicking against the pricks. And Paul never got over grace And peace. And when you think about it, Paul doesn't wish upon the Thessalonian church, he doesn't say, I wish you fame and fortune. He doesn't say, I I, I wish you health and wealth, but instead, grace and peace. He doesn't even say, I wish God's great blessing upon you. He says, grace and peace. Because when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, grace and peace is all we really need. In fact, grace and peace are the formula for salvation. For by grace are ye saved through faith. It starts with grace. We heard about this morning. Salvation starts with grace. It is all encompassed in the grace of God. And that grace of God, when we choose to receive it, it exchanges that enmity that we had with God And it replaces it it with the peace. The peace with God that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. As he (laughs) deals with that sin problem. And before we we were enemies of God and now we can experience peace with God. It is the formula for salvation. You cannot get saved without grace, without peace. But it's also the formula for sanctification. That we are dependent as believers. We are dependent upon God's grace, upon God's help. In rooting out sin in our lives as, as He's working in us and through us. And He's pulling out those, those weeds of sin, the, the weeds of anger and, and bitterness and selfishness and, and pride. We need God's grace in order to, to help us to root those things out. And that allows us to grow closer and closer to Him. And when we do so, we experience the peace of God. The peace of God that passes all understanding. And it keeps our hearts and minds Through Christ Jesus. It is the formula for sanctification. And it's this grace and peace that would enable the church at Thessalonica to be a ministering church. And so let's move on to verses 3 and 4 and talk about the ministry of this church. And specifically in verse number 4, we've kind of alluded to this already, but we'll talk about the words that Paul uses here and consider the context of this ministry. He, he's, going to, uh, he's going to launch into the effect that the, the church in Thessalonica is having on him personally and on, on his entire missions team. He's going to launch into that. But first we need to understand what's going on in this context. Well, he uses a couple of words in verse number four specifically. He says, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions And tribulations that ye endure. In verse 5, he adds the word suffer, suffering. Think about these words, persecutions. You'll note that it is not singular, but plural. It's more than one. Persecutions are organized, systematic oppression and harassment. Persecution is the infliction of pain, of punishment, or death upon others, unjustly. Perhaps you've experienced some injustice in your life. That has an effect on you. That has an effect on people when they experience injustice, when they are persecuted. That's exactly what the church at Thessalonica is going through. They're alone and they're facing this organized, it's not just a one-off sort of thing, it's not just a, you know, it, it, it was an unfortunate circumstance. No, this is organized, it's systematic, they're being oppressed, they're being harassed, it's causing pain, they're being treated unjustly. That's the context of what's going on here, persecutions. He also mentions tribulations, again, plural, more than one. Tribulations is deals with the idea of trouble, affliction, and anguish. It literally means being pressed together or experiencing pressure. It's not quite the same thing, but we kind of uh, communicate the same thing when we talk about being under stress. But it's a little bit deeper than that. When we're under stress, we're, we're feeling the pressure. We're, we're, we're buckling underneath the load. And that's a little bit, uh, gives us an idea, a little bit of what they're experiencing. Although, obviously, it was much more severe and deep for them. In fact, this tribulation was so severe and so difficult, it led many of them to believe that the rapture had already taken place. And that great tribulation that Paul had, had, had taught them about, that they were in the middle of it. It was so bad that they thought we're actually this must be the great tribulation that Paul was talking about. We're probably in the midst of it. It is this bad, and I don't I don't think that's an exaggeration. I, I, I know they probably didn't have a concept exactly of how bad the tribulation uh, is going to be. Of course, we have the Book of Revelation that helps us. They didn't have that yet, but that's how bad it was—the tribulation that they were going through. And that led to the idea in verse 5 that they were suffering. The idea of suffering is they were feeling it. You ever use that phrase? I'm really feeling it. They were feeling this pain. Suffering means to feel pain. These young Christians, in a very important time in their, their spiritual lives, they're young baby Christians. And this is not an easy time. That's the context. And if you take a moment and just place yourself in that context. Have you ever experienced difficulties? Persecutions, tribulations, suffering? To some extent, we all have. Put yourself in that situation. It's during those times that we feel the need. Hey, everyone. Minister to me. I need some help. We we expect the ministry of others on our behalf. And that may be an erroneous attitude to have. Instead, we should take a moment to consider our greatest example, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember John chapter 13? This is the very night that Jesus is betrayed. It is less than 24 hours, and he is going to be on the cross experiencing untold physical anguish and emotional turmoil, being separated from the Father, paying the price of your sin and my sin. I mean, he's, he's going into the deepest, darkest time of his life, and he knows it. He knows what's going to happen. It's not like it's not catching him off guard. He, he knows he is headed for a time of severe persecution and suffering. And what does Jesus do in John chapter 13? He takes off his coat, adorns the, the, the clothing of a servant, gets a bowl and a towel, and does the most menial task there was to do in washing the disciples' feet. In the midst of tribulation, in the midst of great suffering, in the midst of a time of great need in his life, he chose to minister in the midst. He's our example. This is what we ought to do. In this same context, what this church is experiencing is a level of great tribulation and persecution. But what we see is the ministry that they performed. Let's look at the, how Paul describes this ministry. In verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you toward each other aboundeth. This church, to the Apostle Paul and to the missions team, Silas and Timothy, this church ministered thanksgiving. Paul says we're bound. We're bound. The idea is uh, we're under obligation. We're under compulsion. We, we, We just... We're under a debt. Whenever we hear about you, whenever we think about you, it's just a natural reaction. We just have to turn and thank God for you. They're ministering thanksgiving and encouragement to the heart of the Apostle Paul. And you'll notice there's a couple words there in verse 3. We're bound to thank God always for you. Every time that God brought them to mind, every time they heard about what was going on, they were immediately driven to thank God because of the testimony of the believers in Thessalonica. Always. And then he points out also in verse 3 that this thanksgiving that they were offering on behalf of or because of the testimony of the Thessalonians, this thanksgiving was something that was meat. And the idea of it being meat is that it was appropriate. It was fitting. It was proper. It was the right thing to do. It was the right response to their testimony. So here we find the church at Thessalonica, in the midst of their tribulation, in the midst of their great need, they're ministering, albeit unknowingly, they're ministering to Paul, to Silas, and to Timothy. They're ministering thanksgiving. In verse 4, he points out that they're ministering glory so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Glory, that's the idea of glorying is is boasting, rejoicing, joy. And he points out that this joy was being brought not only to his heart, but to Silas's heart and to Timothy's heart, as well as the churches of God probably as they're ministering there in Corinth and building that church there in Corinth, they're they're sharing this is what God is doing in Thessalonica. This is their testimony. This is how God is working. Uh, And this is a reason why we should rejoice. We should glory. We should be happy. We should should jump for joy. They're ministering glory to the preacher and to the churches of God. This ministry is not only received by Paul, Silas, Timothy, the churches of God, but it was also a ministry, and understand what what I'm saying with this, but it's also a ministry to God himself. As because of them and because of their testimony, there was thanksgiving and praise being directed to God. There was glory being directed to God because of them. They're ministering in the midst of great persecution. Now get a hold of this because this is powerful. Imagine what it was like for the Thessalonians to receive this second letter from Paul. And as it's, I'm imagining it being read publicly. It's not like they could make copies for everybody and, you know, email them out or whatever, but it was probably read publicly. You got together and you began hearing about how. It wasn't a a big secret that they were in the midst of some difficult times. It wasn't a secret that they were in the midst of suffering. But they sat down and heard this letter and they learned something. They learned that God was using them. They learned that they were in their testimony and how they were conducting themselves. They learned that they were ministering to Paul, to Silas, to Timothy, to the churches of God. And they were bringing glory to God. Imagine what that was like to hear. As a believer, could there be anything more encouraging, anything more inspiring, anything more invigorating than to hear how God is using your testimony for His glory? Amen. I don't, you, you probably could not concoct an encouragement that was more powerful than God is using you. You're in the midst of trial. You're in the, you're in the, the midst of suffering you're in the midst of difficult times, but God is still using you. I, I can't think of anything more encouraging than that. But see, here's, here's the thing. When we get in our mindset, oh, I'm going through a difficult time. I need people to minister to me. And sometimes that perspective clouds our view. We don't see how people are actually ministering to us, because our expectation goes up. And it, it, it has a little impact. It has a little effect on us when what we really need is to get a vision as, as to how God could use us and how God is using us Amen. because they were ministering in the midst, they received the ministry they needed the most because they made a, a choice to continue uh, on, on the path that they were going to continue doing what was right to to, to continue uh, following the Lord God used that to minister to others, and then when they learned about it, it encouraged them more than anything else could. That was the, that's the description of their ministry. Which leads us to an important thought, number three. What was the means of their ministry? Or we could say it this way. How can we, like them, minister in the midst of tribulation? How did this all happen? Well, Paul lays it out in verse 3. We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because. Oh, here we go. Because that your faith groweth exceedingly. The first means, how they were able to, to minister, was that they had a growing faith. Faith is the idea of a complete trust. It's a reliance. It's a dependence that is to a degree that it produces obedience. It is, I am dependent upon God, I am dependent upon His Word, and so therefore, when God's Word says, A, I do A. Faith always leads to obedience. Faith is a conviction of truth that then leads to acting upon that truth. Because if you're convinced that something is true, you cannot help yourself but to act upon that which you believe and you're convinced to be true. If you're not acting upon it, you're probably not really convinced that it's actually true. That's the reality of things. They had faith. And not just faith, but faith that was growing. And not just growing faith, but exceedingly growing faith. Their faith was increasing beyond measure. Their faith was growing Their their faith, it's like that there wasn't enough room to contain it. It was just coming out of everywhere. It was growing exceedingly. Growth is an indication of, of life. If there's no growth, there's probably not really any sort of life. Exceeding growth, though, is an indication of vibrant life. Of healthy life. And it was the faith of the Thessalonians that was growing, indicating that these believers had a vibrant. An exciting relationship and walk with God. God was doing things in their life. God was challenging their faith. God was challenging them with areas of obedience, steps of faith that they needed to make. And they were responding to that challenge. They were taking those steps and they were growing exceedingly in their faith. And this is what God wants for all of us. God doesn't want to just save us and get us to an acceptable plane in our spiritual life and then nothing else happens from there on out. It's like, I'm good. Everything's fine. I'm happy where I'm. I'm comfortable where, where I'm at. That's a dangerous place to be. We ought to be pursuing after this exceeding growth. And it was this growth that God used, this growth that was taking place in their lives that God used to minister to others in their time of need. A growing faith. What's also mentioned in verse number three is an abounding Charity. Charity is the agape love. That's actually the word for charity here. The Greek word agape. Kindness, it means. It means affection. Tenderness that often includes a generosity or a liberality in giving. I wonder if this love, this seed of love, wouldn't later on in the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul refers to the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia and the church of Thessalonica would have been one of those churches. And Paul talks about the offering that he was collecting out of their deep poverty. It only expounded to the riches of their liberality. They were so generous. One of the reasons for that was their charity. Their charity was abounding. And Specifically, he points out that this is a collective charity. The charity of every one of you all. It was not just, you, you know, we have one or two generous people. We have one or two loving people in the congregation. It's not just, well, uh, those individuals, they always reach out to people. They always show love. They always greet the, the visitors. So therefore, I don't have to. No, this is a collective thing. The charity, the love of every one of you all. But it's also a directed charity because it's now then toward each other. Your charity of every one of you all toward each other is abounding. And literally that word abounding means super abounding. It means existing in abundance. It means growing and making an increase. Because of their abounding charity... They were able to minister in the midst of tribulation. Then verse 4. So that we also glory in you in the churches of God for, or because of, your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. This is a faith-filled endurance. Patience in the Bible means endurance. It means Perseverance. It means a steadfast constancy, a capability to continue on, to bear up under difficult circumstances. It's the idea of, uh, of not being moved by, by troubles and trials. It's the idea of, uh, in sports, we talk about somebody being knocked off of their game by trash talking or, you know, you do a little something to, get, to just get, mess with their head. And that, that's the opposite of this idea of patience, of endurance, of continuing on of continuing to move forward in spite of the attacks, in spite of the trials and the circumstances and the difficulties. Because of their endurance, because they said, we're going to keep moving forward, we're going to keep following Christ in the midst, that doesn't matter what's happening, this is the direction we're going. Because of their patience, they were able to minister in the midst. And also he uses the word faith again. It's the same exact word. This time it's a little bit more meaning because their faith is in the midst of persecutions and tribulations that they were enduring. Now all of these things, a growing faith, an abounding charity, a faith-filled endurance, all of these things, there's an emphasis in each, not necessarily on doing, but on being. So they were ministering, not necessarily because it was on purpose. Like we know that, you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they need encouragement. They, they, they need something. It wasn't like they were intentionally saying, well, let's do something for the churches there. Let's do something for Paul and, and Silas and Timothy. There would be opportunities for that later on. They were simply able to minister because of their focus on being what God wanted them to be. Their focus on being rather than just simply doing. Now, both are important. I don't mean to discount either one, but it needs to start with the idea of being. The ministry that they fulfilled wasn't something that they intentionally set out to do. But it was something that God accomplished through them as they surrendered themselves to be what God wanted them to be. Think about how powerful that is and how exciting that is. Because it's the devil that comes in and he convinces us that no one sees. He tells us that no one is watching. He tells us that nobody will care if you quit. It won't hurt anybody else. Nobody really cares about you. So why don't you just walk away? Why don't you throw in the towel? Why don't you do something that's more fulfilling? Because it won't have any impact. Nobody's really watching anyway. You'll be fine. It won't cause It won't cause harm to anyone. And guess what? All of that is a lie. They did not know that in their pursuit of being what God wanted them to be, that God was in the process of using that to encourage and to minister to Paul and Silas and Timothy and the churches of God. They did not know that. They didn't set out intentionally to accomplish that. It was something that God did through them. And what an encouragement it must have been to learn about that. When that wasn't the... We weren't trying to do that. Well, all praise to God for that. All glory to Him for that, right? Don't listen to the lies of the devil. You are an important part of this church. You are an integral piece. You are an important piece of of this body. And when you do decide to walk away, when you do decide to quit or throw in the towel, when you do decide to step away from ministry, it has an impact. That's the negative side. The positive side is you continue being what God wants you to be and God will use you. Perhaps in ways that you have, you'll have no idea about until you get to eternity and God will say, I was using you that way. I accomplished this. Because of what you are allowing me to do in your life. That's exciting. We can minister in the midst. But if my focus, my perspective is all about receiving ministry from others. Because after all, I'm in a time of need. If my focus is receiving ministry, I will miss the ministry that God has for me. And here's the sad part. Not only do I miss the ministry that God has for me, but then I miss the encouragement about knowing how God has used me. And that's the powerful, that's the real encouragement that I need. Those other things don't, won't necessarily fill that void. May God help us tonight to, to get a vision of how God can use us even in the midst of our darkest days. Paul is saying to the church of Thessalonica, you, you brought forth thanksgiving. You brought me, and the language he uses, almost like you forced me into having a praise session with God. <laughs> All right? Because of your testimony, I was bound uh, to give, I mean, it was meat, it was appropriate for me to give thanksgiving and praise to God. You did that to me, you ministered to me in the midst of your, your trial. You brought glory. You you, you brought that that praise, that that exaltation, even to the level of boasting and all that God was doing in you. You encouraged me. You ministered to me. Even in the midst of your darkest days. God can use you and I. God can use our church to do the very same thing. But it starts with us having the the vision adjustment, the perspective adjustment to say, you know what, this is not all about me. It's not all about going and being ministered to because if you've you've had any experience, if you've been around long enough, when you have that attitude, you come into church, all right, minister to me, you're going to be disappointed. You're not going to receive what you think you need because actually what you really need is to understand that God can use you in spite of what's going on around you. May we get a vision of how God wants to use us